You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was a God the only God, the only wise, infinite, eternal, omnipotent God, existing eternally in three persons, and there is one God, and God was all that there was. But out of his character of giving, out of his character of generosity, out of his character of love and wanting to share with other, not needing to, but wanting to, God created And there was the existence in an instant of the entire angelic spiritual realm apart from God. And it was good until it wasn't. There was rebellion. There was grasping. There was fear, uncertainty, doubt. And yet God continued to move forward. God then created all that which is material and physical. He created the universe as we know it. Structure, physiological, tactile existence. And he created a world that was good and it was perfect and it was beautiful. Until out of his own character, God created a person, another uh, satient being named Adam. A human being made in his image. And this human walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, and they had relationship. They were aware of one another. But God said that it was not good for this man to be alone. Even though he wasn't, he was walking with God. God said, no, there is some other aspect where he needs to be completed. And so in a foretaste and a flicker of the gospel, as early as Genesis chapter 2, God causes the king of the world, as it were, to die puts him in a deep, deep death-like trance, opens his side and removes from his side, as it were, a bride. Looking forward to thousands and thousands of years later when the true king of the world would be laid down dead, his side opened so that a bride would be produced, the church. And Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God and it was good. And then God does something astonishing. God tells them no. He gives them a restriction and a rule. And God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that a world with the possibility of evil is actually better than a world without. A world with the potential for evil in his overarching scheme and plan of things is actually better than a world without. And so Eve and Adam rebel. And they introduce the virus of sin into the world so that all of their billions of offspring that come from them afterward would be fallen by nature, by default, as if those offspring had committed the first sin themselves. And those offspring come into the world by nature, by default, God-haters. And God sees this, and he knows this. Despite having been so gracious, so good, so giving... What do you suppose this God will do when he comes 
to Adam and to Eve. What have you done? What do you suppose God will do next? Well, he didn't do what I would have done. God says, I promise I will fix this. You can't fix this. It has begun and you can't end it. But I promise you, I will fix this. He tells the woman, you were deceived by that serpent just like it bruised your heel. I will send a redeemer and it will crush his head. I promise I will fix this. Thousands of years go by and God continues his program of saving people, of bringing back his presence into their lives. And he finds a Chaldean moon worshiper named Abram with a barren wife. And he says, I'm going to create a nation out of nothing. And I'm going to have for myself a chosen people. And I'm going to make this guy a promise. Because in the midst of mess, what God does is promise. It's astonishing. He tells this man, Abram, from you, rulers and kings and nations will come and they will be a blessing to the entire world. Your seed will be the deliverer, the redeemer of the entire world. I promise. About 500 years later, God encounters a man named Moses and he says, I'm going to make you a temporary promise. If these people, Israel, whose purpose and position in the world is to spread my word, is to spread my glory, is to spread my goodness, to demonstrate what I'm like, if you do what I say, you will have blessing. If you don't do what I say, you will have curse. About 500 years later, God comes to a, a young shepherd boy, and like all gingers, he was ruddy and handsome. And he promises King David, you will be the king of Israel. I'm giving you the headship over this nation. And the Redeemer will come from your line forever. 500 years after that, he tells the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant with my people. And I will make these people like me. I will put my spirit within them. I will write my law upon their hearts. They will be ever increasingly like me. And then 500 years after that, amazingly, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, He actually does come. And as it turns out, <laughs> it's God Himself, the second member of the Godhead Trinity. He is at once everything that God is, and He is everything that man is. All in one. He sets rights and He fulfills the promises made to Eve. He fulfills the promises made to Abraham. He completed and concluded the promises made to Moses. He fulfilled the promises made to David. And he inaugurates and he initiates the promise of the new covenant. But as it turns out, to many people's disappointment and dismay, he did not set up a literal, physical, earthly kingdom at that time. But instead, he died to take away the sin of the world. And he instituted a kingdom in human hearts. And those people became those who were indwelled by God's Spirit, both Jew and Gentile. And those people were the church, and their purpose was then to go and tell the entire world that the rightful king has landed because God is the kind of God that makes a promise, and he promised, and he delivered. Until such time as the king will return. Now that is the overarching story, the narrative, if you will, of our faith. That's the story of Christianity, and it prepares us for where we are in our passage this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I ask and invite you to please turn to the book of Romans chapter 11. 
Romans chapter 11. In the midst of basically everything that could go wrong, God's response has always been to make promises. He will make everything right. Even though he isn't responsible for any of it going wrong, he will superintend and use that which has gone wrong for his purpose. Now that's sovereignty. He's not responsible for any of it going wrong, but he will use and he superintends it so that he can be a blessing to all of his people. It is an amazing story of grace. The overarching story is essentially our big idea for the morning. It's the big idea for Christianity. It's the big idea for our passage. And it goes like this. God will fix this. God will fix this. Now, I can tell you there's going to be a lot of little doctrinal trees in our passage this morning, but that's the forest. God will fix this. I don't want us to miss the forest for all the little trees. That's the big overarching concept. God will fix this. Remember that the book of Romans has one overarching theme as well. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how a person is saved. And now Paul's going to unpack and unlock a whole lot more deep doctrine in addressing this last aspect of how people are actually saved. So we're going to read Romans chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 25, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant or not knowing of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. It is a great proclamation and a presentation of the gospel. The good news about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now, this morning's passage finally rounds out 11 chapters of doctrine that Paul has given us so far in the book of Romans. 11 chapters of doctrine. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start chapter 12 and we'll begin those chapters of practical application. But this is extremely instructive and important. In all of Paul's writings, in all of his letters, he always starts with a doctrinal foundation and a basis and then he moves to application. In other words, the doctrine always precedes the doing. It is impossible to serve and love a God that you do not know. And so Paul is very quick and very careful to make sure to tell us all of the things that God has done, who God is, and therefore who we are, which produces in us what we are to do, say, think, and believe. 
In that order always, doctrine must always precede the doing. 11 chapters of doctrine, and now at long last, Paul's going to get us next week into some practical doings. We have to remember that this section of Romans, often been called by evangelical preachers, the forbidden zone. This chapters 9, 10, and 11 is the national illustration of everything that Paul had said in chapter 8. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, even if it looks a bit sketchy at the time. Wait a minute, nothing's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Well, what about it? What happened to Israel? It seems like God kind of dropped the ball on that one. He sure did fumble an entire ethnicity. What's going on there? Oh no, Paul says, let me make my point. He has not. God still has a precise plan for Israel. He absolutely has a plan for Israel. Now, I'm going to walk back through this. Uh, I'm going to front load some time at the beginning of our passage, and then we'll pick up speed midway through, and we'll finish up quickly. So back to Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Paul says something amazing. The verse technically actually starts with a therefore. He's just finished telling them in verse 24 that they are two different branches that have been grafted together, that God's plan in salvation history has been to bring the Jews and the Gentiles, those different nations, together. There's been a grafting and a grafting. And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant or not knowing. Brothers, now this is really important. He calls them brothers. It's super crucial for Paul that the people in the church understand that there is no particular group that has any primacy or superiority over any other. Most of the churches that Paul plants in the modern country of Turkey were primarily and predominantly Jewish Christians, and they were looking down on the Gentile Christians. But in Rome, in Italy, most of the believers there are Gentile, and they're starting to look down on the Jewish believers. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, we are in Christ. Paul was absolutely never, ever condoning any sort of anti-Semitism whatsoever. Throughout the last 2,000 years, when the church, regrettably, ashamedly, when the church has perpetrated acts of anti-Semitism, claiming that the Jews killed Jesus and so now we want revenge, that is a group of people who have shamefully never read Romans 9, 10, and 11. God still loves Israel and he has a wonderful plan for their life. Paul says that we are brothers. He wants to be very clear that there is no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. Lest you be wise in your own sight, unless you begin to think, hey, you're somehow better, you have some higher estimation or esteem, I don't want that for you, Paul says. I do not want you to be unaware. In all of Paul's writings, he's going to address some aspect of ignorance because there are all kinds of things that were delicately or faintly appearing in the Old Testament, but we didn't understand them until Christ comes and Christ himself is the light that illumines those mysteries and Christ directly also revealed them to Paul. And now Paul writes them down for our understanding, our internalization. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, a mystery is not a secret. A mystery is something that existed in the Old Testament but that was temporarily veiled or hidden by God. Oh, it's there, you just can't quite make out the shapes. B.B. Warfield used to say, it's like a, a room full of furniture, but dimly lit. You can make out some rough outlines, but you can't quite tell what is what. It's there, we just didn't know that it was there. And Paul says, aha, now Christ has come. Now we see what this was. All the breadcrumbs were lying on the trail. We just didn't understand what they meant. 
this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now that's really important. Not a complete hardening, a partial hardening. And this hardening is not like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9. That was a sclerosis, a hardening, a rejection, and a resistance. This is a different word entirely. This is a dullness has come upon the people of Israel. On ethnic Israel, God has allowed their rejection to sort of morph into and to de-evolute into a dullness where they do not like the gospel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And let me just go ahead and say, they do not like the gospel. Now Paul, again, is not saying anything anti-Semitic. Paul is just saying they have a resistance. It is a stumbling block to an ethnic Jew. And, unfortunately, the church, as I mentioned, has been grossly guilty of abuses towards the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years. Unfortunately, regrettably, I wish this was not so, but it is. Martin Luther, who we quote all the time, one of the fathers of the Reformation, brilliant mind, incredible thinker, even about the book of Romans, but later in his life, he suffered all kinds of chronic diseases, physiologically, that began to eat away at his mind, and he basically went crazy. And he wrote some things that were absolutely horrifyingly terrible towards the Jewish people. Very, 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 very bad things. Such that 500 years later or so, an Austrian man named Adolf Hitler sat in his jail cell and he read Luther's writings about these things and he wrote his own book synthesizing all that called Mein Kampf, which becomes the basis for the Holocaust. I wish that was not so. So that to this day, if you go to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, the very first exhibit that they lead tourists through is the hall where the church has persecuted and killed Jews for the last 2,000 years. And a great big picture of Martin Luther. It's tragic. But to be clear, there is a partial hardening of Israel in this age. And Paul wants us to understand, as Christians, what's going on there. And know most of your Jewish friends, I'm assuming that all of you at least have some Jewish acquaintance or friend, perhaps even family member, and you've always kind of wondered, like, what's the deal? What can we talk about? What can we not talk about? This is weird. Can't we all just get along? No. There is a partial hardening. As we talked about last week when Greg Brandenburg led us through the first half of this chapter, there is always a remnant preserved, and those people come into the church, into faith in Messiah, by grace through faith. But ethnically, as a race, there is a partial hardening. They do not like that we claim that their Messiah has come and that they missed him, that he is absent and he is not reigning militarily. They wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom that would kick out the invaders. That didn't happen. They don't like that we claim that he did come. They don't like that we claim that he died and that they were complicit in his death, as were the Gentiles. The Gospels make it very clear the Jews were responsible and the Romans were responsible, both Jew and Gentile, but they don't like to hear that. They really don't like the idea that we claim that Jesus was a blood sacrifice that made atonement for sin on our behalf and it was received exclusively by faith. They really don't like that. Your Jewish friends, if they know much about their own scriptures at all, will say that's not true. It does not require blood sacrifice. The book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh and says repent and they do and there's no bloodshed. And so your Jewish friends will see there, say, see there, no blood sacrifice, no atonement was made except that's a misunderstanding of the book of Jonah. In Jonah, they repent 
temporarily, and God does not destroy them for about 100 years. And then they revert, and then he destroys them. That repentance for 100 years was not unto eternity. It was to avoid immediate judgment and destruction by God. So the book of Jonah and that argument goes out. But they don't like that we claim that our Messiah was a blood sacrifice once and for all. And they certainly don't like that we believe that the law of Moses has been fulfilled and completed, that that covenant is finished. And yet Paul's point in this is, I don't want you to be unaware. You and I are to respect our Jewish friends, and we are to pray for them, understanding that a partial dullness has come upon them, that God has allowed this. Now, please, 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 don't go to your Jewish friends and go, I'm so sorry God made you dull. That's not, no, not, please, that's not, no, don't do that. Don't, that's not helpful. It's actually what Paul says, not helpful, okay? There's a partial dullness that has come upon them. So what do we do? We pray for them that God would do for them what he has done for us and raise the veil else we would not be able to see either. Incredibly important that we understand that. Until, there's a partial hardening until. Super important word that Paul uses there. There is a finite moment in time when that hardening, that dullness will be removed. Very important that we get this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Putting together everything that Paul has said for these first 11 chapters, we know that there are the elect. The calling of God is irrevocable. There is a certain number of elect that he has called, and that number's not yet full. What's the number? I don't know, but more than it is in currently. It's taken 2,000 years to fill that number of the Gentiles, and it might take another 2,000 years. I have no idea. Nobody knows. So please do not try to interpret prophecy through the Drudge Report and other internet blogs. Not helpful. This is not helpful. We don't know what the full number is, but praise God, I know people who are not believers, and I am praying that not just yet, God, not just yet, a little longer, bring them in, bring them in, a little bit longer, do for them what you have done for me. I have family members and friends that the thought of them spending an eternity in torment apart from God crushes me, and so I say, not yet. Not yet. And what if that one cousin of mine, what if that one friend or that family member of mine is the final number of the Gentiles coming in? I don't know. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, there is a finite number. This is the age that we are currently in. In other words, I want to be as distinctly clear about this as I can. There is a difference between the church and Israel. They are not the same thing. We know this because in verse 26, Paul says, and in this way, and here's the bombshell, it's been called the storm center of the book of Romans. In this way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now that is a huge statement that has messed people around for a very, very long time. But Paul is being clear. There is a time and an age of the Gentiles we call the church where God has turned away. He has set Israel as an ethnic people aside. He has suspended, if you will, his program with them. Now, I don't know what all you believe about end times, timing and prophecies and all things. I don't really care. I just want you to know what Paul believes about those things. The Apostle Paul is clearly convinced that there is a time where God has been working with Israel through salvation history and he has now suspended that program and set them aside until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and then God will turn his attention back toward them and that's got nothing to do with the church. That's what Paul's saying. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Now, I know these are just words, and in this way, and it kind of yada yadas right past us. But what Paul's saying here is, no, 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 this is the thing. This is it. This is what the Old Testament was trying to tell us, and we didn't get it. This is the mystery. I'm telling you now, this is that. It was foretold all through the Old Testament, but I didn't get it. I didn't understand it, but it's been there all along. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, and then he quotes Isaiah 27, 9, and then he quotes a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, this is absolutely massive, and it's geeky, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you, because I really do want you to come back next week for Romans 12, I'm going to paraphrase a whole ton of Old Testament passages. I highly exhort and encourage you to read them on your own. If we do this, we'll be here till right before sunset. So we're not going to do that. I'm just going to paraphrase and say, hey, here's what's going on. When Paul says all of Israel will be saved in this way, He's saying, this is the way it happens. This has been the plan all along through salvation history, through the meta-narrative and the overarching story of Christianity. This is how all Israel will end up getting saved. And he quotes Isaiah 59. And we sort of have to know this, or we won't actually understand what we're reading in the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry. He says some things in the gospels, and you're like, Okay, that's cute. I don't have any idea what that actually means. It just means it must be Jesus speak and it's not for me to understand and <sighs> move on. No, 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 no. The things that Jesus says mean something. Paul quotes Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21, which says, Yahweh, the Redeemer, will come from Zion. And when he says Zion, that means the presence in heaven. The Redeemer will come and he will do a thing. Well, Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21, is talking about Yahweh in that context. Paul nuances it and says, this is about Jesus. He's Yahweh. The Deliverer has come from Zion. The interesting thing is the very next verse in Isaiah, this is brilliant insight, the very next verse in Isaiah from 59, verses 20 to 21, the next verse is, it's not 22, surprisingly, it's chapter 60, verse 1. There should not be a chapter break there. Chapter 60 says, The light has come, but darkness will come upon you, and then the light will return. Now, Isaiah didn't fully understand all that he was writing right there. But there's this wonderful, fascinating little vignette in John's Gospel, chapter 12, where Jesus actually gives us an interpretive clue to what's going on in Isaiah, and then Paul picks up off that and says, this is that. Let me explain. In John chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty cool. Except that all the Jewish people come, they say, ooh, this is very bad. On account of Lazarus, people are starting to believe in Jesus. We have to kill him. Jesus hears this and he says, uh-huh, the Son of Man, Messiah, must be lifted up. And they go, whoa, 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 you're talking like someone's trying to kill you. We've read, it says in John chapter 12, that the Christ goes on forever. What are you saying? And Jesus tells them, almost an exact quote of Isaiah 60. And we have a tendency to read it in John chapter 12 like it's a rebuke. It's not. It's compassionate. He quotes Isaiah 61 to 3, essentially, and he says, the light has come upon you. Please, turn while you still have the light. Because it's about to get dark. The door of the ark is about to be closed. And Israel... You are about to find yourself out. I'm begging you, while the light has come, Isaiah 60, please receive the light because the door is about to be closed and the light is about to go out. 
We have to understand the things that Jesus says as the inspirer of Scripture, as the fulfiller of all Scripture. He knows what he's doing. He's not just saying strange-sounding poetic phrases. This means a thing. He's begging for them. I'm about to close the door to the ark. Please come in. Because after I close the door to the ark, I'm going to open it to somebody else, which makes them want to kill him. And Paul says, this is that. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And then he continues. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, this is the answer to the question. How will all Israel be saved? Oh, this quote from Isaiah 27, verse 9. He will banish all ungodliness from Jacob. Paul seems to believe, as do I, I'm sure Paul is delighted that I agree with him. Paul seems to feel that there will be a time of what's called the time of Jacob's trouble in which the age of the Gentiles will conclude. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in. The dullness will be removed. There will be a refocusing of God's attention on the program of Israel. And all the Israelites, the ethnic Jews, who are disobedient and rebellious and reject, all of that ungodliness will be removed. You can read the tribulation passages of Revelation 6 to 18. It's horrifying. God will return his gaze upon Israel and all the ungodliness will be removed from Jacob. That is a judgment text that says all the defiant, rebellious, rejecting ethnic Jews, they will be removed and all those that remain will be saved. Messiah will return. This is a second coming text. The Messiah will return and all those who remain alive who have made it through the judgment years, they will all be saved. That's really important for us to understand. Paul says, this is how that happens. It was their time and the Gentiles were on the outside. And then it was a hardening of their hearts so that the Gentiles could come in so that the Jews would be made jealous so that it would be their time again. Just to make sure we get that, he's going to explain all of this. And then verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's referring to the new covenant referred to in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel and Isaiah. This is how it gets done. Paul says this is that. Then verse 28, he's going to explain all these things. What Paul says is that what Isaiah could not have fully seen is there is a parenthesis between the first coming of Messiah when the light shows and then the darkness comes and then the light returns. Isaiah could not have seen that that's been thus far a 2,000 year parenthesis, the age of the Gentiles. Paul says Isaiah didn't see it, but the mystery is, re is revealed. Now we see it. Now I know this mystery was the age of the church for these two millennia thus far. The parentheses between first and second coming, that's the mystery. It was there all along. We just couldn't see it. So now Paul's going to explain this mystery in greater detail. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, the good news, they are enemies for your sake. They are opposed to the gospel. It is a stumbling block to them. They do not like it. They do not want to hear it. But as regards election, they are beloved. God still loves them corporately for the sake of their forefathers because in the midst of the mess, myth, uh, of the mess God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because he promised, it cannot be undone. If those promises were to fail, it would un-God God, and that cannot happen. They are 
under disobedience. They are under dullness, but they are still elect. Not every individual, of course, but the corporate ethnic uh, Israel that exists. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, let me just say, this verse, believe it or not, verse 29, exists in a context of Romans 11, which exists in a context of Romans 9 to 11, which exists in a context of Romans. Perhaps you've heard this verse ripped out of context to say, hey, when you get a spiritual gift or God calls you to ministry, he'll never let you out of that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, perhaps that has nothing to do with this passage. Paul's grammar here is essentially saying the gift, specifically the calling of God, is irrevocable. Once God calls a person, summons them, it is irrevocable. He cannot go back on it ever. That's verse 29. Four, and then he's going to explain this whole program of how God has gone back and forth to Israel and the church, and ultimately one day back to Israel. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, most of us in this room, I'm assuming, are not Jewish in our background. Maybe some of you are, praise God. But most of us are probably Gentile in our origin, which means we really owe our ancestry not to Israel, but to the Tower of Babel. Yay! We were the scattered and splattered nations who had to get dispersed all over the world outside the covenant-keeping people of God. And God's program and His focus from Genesis 12 on is with the nation of Israel. There was a time that we were disobedient. We were on the outside. Paul says here, verse 30, you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy. And Paul wants them to remember, mercy means by definition, you didn't earn it, you didn't achieve it, you don't deserve it, you've gotten God's grace. Because of their disobedience, in the midst of their mess, God made a promise, I will fix this, and in the meantime, I'm going to do something you never expected, I'm going to bring in the Gentiles from all over the world. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. This has been God's program. You were disobedient and I turned my attention toward them. Then they were disobedient and I've turned my attention to you. And as we learn in the first half of chapter 11, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the age of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous for her Messiah to turn back Now, Jesus himself, again, talks about this very thing, and Paul's going, oh, this is that. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus says, hey, you're going to come to me at some point, and you're going to ask to get in, and I'm going to close the door. Very similar language to John 12. I'm going to close the door. And the Jewish people ask him, well, are so few going to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I've made a promise to them. But then the door will be closed, and I will invite in those from the north, the south, the east, and the west, so that you will come in. And then there's all this wonderful, wonderful Old Testament texts in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, that says during this time, Israel's heart, the the hearts of ethnic Israel, are being prepared to look on him whom they have pierced. And when the hardening is removed, remaining ethnic Israel will see him. Revelation talks about there will be 144,000 preachers who will go all throughout the world preaching and evangelizing, talking about the Messiah. That will happen. 
Israel will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus talks about it then, referring to Zechariah, in Matthew 24 and 25, saying this is that, this is going to happen. This is how Israel gets saved. There is a dullness, but it is the time of the Gentiles. We are to make Israel jealous. Now, just about the time someone says, good grief, this is really complicated, Paul. That you had the, the, like, there's nobody, and then there's Israel, and then like they're obedient, but then they're not obedient, and so they get set aside, and now it's the Gentiles, and there's only going to be a certain amount of time for that, and then they're going to be set aside, and it's going to be time of Israel. Good night. That's really complicated, Paul. What is Paul's response? To bust out in worship. I love that he, when Paul sort of puts down his pen and goes... <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing that God is so good, that He is so glorious, that He is so gracious, that He would do this. Oh, the amazement. And Paul just busts out in praise. Listen to what he says here, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's got this all figured out. We didn't see it. We didn't understand it. But it's been a part of His salvation history plan all along. Oh, What an incredibly ornate, complex plan to get it done through the bad choices and rebellion of billions of people. It's been a part of his plan all along. Oh, we'll find out later that the Lamb of God was crucified in the mind of God before the foundations of the earth. This has always been a part of his plan. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. I love that line. I don't know where you were or what you were doing 19-ish years ago when 9-11 happened in our country. But every single decision that our commander-in-chief made was understandably scrutinized and questioned and debated. Like, ah, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have said this. He shouldn't have done that. He needs to learn how to pronounce nuclear. I get it. Everything he said and did was brought under scrutiny. Every decision, every judgment was searchable. (laughs) Paul says, not so God. Oh no, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And Paul makes up a word here. It literally means there are no footsteps where he goes. You can't understand it. You can't follow it. You think you've got your finger on it. You can't follow him. He's the sovereign, omniscient God of the cosmos. There are no footsteps with God. He's operating around, above, beyond, beneath all things. Just to make sure we get that, how inscrutable his ways. Then he asks these rhetorical questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Now he's quoting from Job. I love that Paul interprets Scripture with Scripture. Job, who didn't understand all that was going on until God said, where were you when I made the ostrich? Job says, okay, my bad. And God says, no, that's, that's cute, Chachi. I'm not done. Pull up a stool. I got more to tell you. And God continues to tell him of his glory and his grandeur. And Paul quotes that. Who's telling Job about the glories of his creation right straight through to redemption. Paul says, oh, oh his plan, it's this. I'm beginning to get it, Paul says. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now Paul asks these rhetorical questions, and we, the reader, have a tendency by default to go, nobody, nobody, nobody. But that's not exactly all that Paul means. 
since Christ has come and He has revealed the mystery and made it viewable, the answer to the question is Jesus. Who has known the mind of God? Oh, Christ. And He has come among us. And not only has He come among us, He is the promise fulfiller. He is establishing His kingdom still, not materially and physically on the earth, but He's actually in the business of making these Gentile peoples more like God's character all the time by indwelling Him with His Spirit, by giving Him the full, completed closure of Scripture, by atoning for their sin on the cross. Oh, it's way better than we can possibly imagine. Whatever you ever say, think, or do that is outside the character of Christ, brethren and sistren, it's done already. It's done already. <sighs> that get out of shame card does not make us sin more. It makes us go, what kind of Redeemer and Savior is this? Oh, the depths of His riches. In the midst of my mess, He makes promises. The Gospel is saying, God will fix this. So, very quickly, three summary implications from this text. There's 50. There are six, there's 100 from this conclusion to Romans 11. I'm just going to give you three very, very quickly. Number one goes like this. We don't have to understand, but we do have to trust we don't get to read ahead. Job doesn't get to read ahead and understand that there's a narrator saying, oh, this is all Satan's doing and God's letting it happen. Job's just going, what in the world? I have an infection. I didn't deserve this. I didn't do anything. I wasn't in the red light district. I've never been to New Orleans. What's happening? But we have the advantage of reading ahead. We have the narration. Job doesn't get that. Joseph doesn't have the advantage of getting to read ahead and knowing that when his brothers throw him in a hole, when he is betrayed by his own people, that it's actually typologically preparing us for the coming of Christ. We know that now. Joseph doesn't know that. He doesn't understand. But we do have to trust. God's plan of salvation history has been going forward for thousands of years through the bad choices of billions of people. And yet, he has always responded, not in fury and judgment, but by making promises to fix the problems that we created, even though we don't deserve that. And so in, as a principle, in our individual walking around daily lives, we don't get to read ahead. We don't get a narrator explaining, hey, this is all that's happened, but we trust that God is in control and that he will take whatever this is for my good and for his glory. If God will keep his promises with something so complex as all Israel, how much more so, Paul says, is he able to keep his promises to us as individuals? We can trust him. And we have the privilege and the advantage of having so much of these grand mysteries now explained to us in Scripture. We'll never know all the secret things, but the secret things will remain God's, but the revealed things are ours and belong to us and our children forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Second point, Israel matters. But please understand, when I say Israel matters, I'm not talking about Israel, net of the 1947 Balfour Declaration that gave them a land in a particular piece of the world that was then expanded in 1967. That state, and yes, we should defend them from a humanitarian standpoint, but that state is a sovereign, godless state by constitution. I do not mean 1948 Israel, although there are a lot of ethnic Jews in Israel. There's also a lot of ethnic Jews in Manhattan. 
There are ethnic Jews all over the world. That's the Israel that Paul means. In the Bible, in the New Testament that is, there are 16 times the word Israel is used. And 16 of those times, all 16 times, the word Israel means Israel. <laughs> it's crazy. It never means the church. It never means anything else. It means ethnic Israel. Israel still matters. Talking about ethnic Israel, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I don't know the requisite percentage of Jewishness to constitute ethnic Israelness. I don't know. Maybe you're one sixty-fourth Jew. Maybe you're a five-twelfth Jew. I have no idea. Maybe you're one thousand twenty-fourth from the tribe of Issachar. Are you in or not? I have no idea. That's up to God. But what I know is that God knows, and He still cares about ethnic Israel. They are His beloved. God is not done with Israel. He promised to fix this. We have to be humbled and remember that this setting aside of Israel is what God used to bring we Gentiles in and God is using us to bring them back in. So what do you do with your Jewish friends, perhaps family members? We are respectful, we are honest, and we are prayerful in our evangelism of them. So this before, one of my Messianic Jewish friends says the most anti-Semitic thing you can do is to not give the gospel. But you don't give the gospel by saying, my God, you're dull. That's, that's, that's not good news. You give the gospel in such a way that they can receive it. You thank them for the content of our confession. Thank you for Messiah. Thank you for the scriptures that pointed toward his coming. Thank you for the texts that say he's coming again. Thank you for your Bible, your Bible that says God loves the Gentiles too. Thank you. That's a whole different approach than calling them dull. Please don't do that. They still matter to God. Third point, and this is a big one. The point of theology is doxology. Doxologos, it means the glory word, worship. That's why we sing the doxology. Our worship informs our understanding and our understanding informs our worship. If all we ever get out of teaching and preaching and small groups and Bible studies and BSF is more head knowledge so that we can somehow get third place on Bible Jeopardy, we've missed it. We've totally missed the point. Look at what Paul does. Paul does great exposition and systematic theology and it brings him to his knees and he praises God for his goodness and glory and grace. The point of our theology, the point of these sermons and the point of our studies and everything that we do in the small groups and everywhere else is so that we will praise God because what the world needs most is people who worship the true living God. I think, yes, we should clean up the plastic mess in the ocean. Great! But what the world really needs is people who worship God in spirit and in truth. So we praise Him and we get caught praising like Paul did when the enormity of it finally dawned on him. Has it ever really dawned on you? I just wonder, husbands, have you ever been busted worshiping where you're just on your knees in your office going, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? Your ways are inscrutable. Your judgment's unsearchable. You've chosen a rebellious, defiant sinner like me. Praise God. And the door opens. And it's your seven-year-old. You're like, oh, I lost a contact. <laughs> or do you go, come in here, come in here, come, come here. And you hug him and you cry and you go, my God loves us. Isn't that great? I promise your seven-year-old needs that more than the new iPhone 11. I promise. Get caught worshiping. Allow it to percolate through your person and worship. 
Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ, even if it looks sketchy. His program of salvation moves through history forward. He will get it done. God will fix this. This is very good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your revealed mystery, that your plan of moving forward from the beginning of time, you've always been ascending God. And so, God, we pray for wisdom to be about the business you've called us to. We do pray for our Jewish friends that you would do for them what you have done for us until such time as the fullness is complete. God, thank you for all that you have revealed to us. Continue to illumine our study so that you will receive the honor and the praise and the glory. And Father, if there is one here this morning who does not know you, who is not in right standing before you, I pray, God, that you will move by your Spirit, issue forth that greatest gift of calling and draw them to your Son, Jesus, that they would believe that they would have courage to talk with someone about this and step out of death and into life. For the rest of us, Father, encourage us, remind us that you will fix this. You have promised in response to our petulance. What a good God you are. Father, we love you. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.